the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Master, we have toiled all the night and have caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. The word toil here is rich with meaning stretching back into the history of Jewish spirituality. On the one hand, this word for toil in casual use meant to take a beating. Within religious conversations among faithful Jews in Galilee, it would have been a familiar term from the mouths of, heard often from the mouths of rabbis, to describe what it felt like to be faithful to God in the midst of a very contrary world. Toiling is a concept spanning the whole of the Jewish spiritual tradition. It begins in the Garden of Eden, when, for the sin of the man and the woman, God pronounced to the man that, quote, cursed is the ground for his sake. In toil he shall eat of it all the days of his life. This truth emerges again in the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, quote, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? To toil in this religious sense meant to endure the exhaustion of soul experienced while resisting infidelity to God and remaining faithful in hope of the fulfillment of God's promise, even if you were unlikely to see it fulfilled in your lifetime. Such toil generally meant that one would take a spiritual beating even as they endured being faithful while the wicked seemed to flourish in the meantime. For St. Peter, after to use this term after a night of catching no fish, it meant more than just, we've worked a full shift last night, Lord. Rather, his phrase says something more like this. Master, we are exhausted in our very souls from fruitless work. Our equipment is clean, and we don't want to pointlessly dirty it again. Plus, I've already prolonged my day's work and labor, and I've done my religious duty by giving you a platform on which to teach. Peter's response is perfectly reasonable for a man, as a man for whom a bitter doubt has begun to eat away at his confidence, especially in this work to which he had previously committed himself for his life. Yet this is the moment at which the very next word means everything. Nevertheless, in this word is reflected a hope beyond the exhaustion of toil. At your word, I will let down the nets. The miraculous catch of fish that follows is a sign of precisely one thing. God is here. God is keeping his promises. God has come to reward the toil of faithfulness. 
the God who over the face of the formless and void waters on the first day and called forth creation, the God who watched our first parents, Adam and Eve, depart from his abundance into bitter weariness and toil and labor, the God whose word alone the preacher of Ecclesiastes saw as the antidote to the world's vanity, that same God now stands before and confronts Peter in his begrudging obedience with a call to genuine faithfulness. Peter's response is the only kind we should have when standing before God. He makes a good confession, repenting of his earlier going through the pious motions of obedience to a religious teacher. Immediately, he experiences a face-to-face encounter with the one before whom and to whom all nods to pious observance submit and end. I am a sinful man. Is a call for help in the form of a simple good confession. And through that good confession, Jesus calls him out of the old toil into the new work that he is doing. Come, it's time for you to catch people. Come, let me show you what everything to this point has been pointing to. Come, let me show you the purpose and meaning of your life. Follow me. St. Peter has all of this in mind when many years later he writes our epistle lesson. His letter was written primarily to Jewish Christians who were spread out through Asia Minor. And it's a sermon meant to instruct them as to the meaning of their new life they had received after baptism. At the heart of St. Peter's letter is an acknowledgement that these Christians were living in an apparent contradiction. They had been made true citizens of the kingdom of Christ through baptism. And yet, at the same time, they were living in the middle of a very pagan culture, where faithfulness to Jesus often meant ostracism or opposition from society. To teach these kind of Christians... Peter takes up the image of the patriarch Abraham, who lived in a land that God had promised to his offspring forever, but who himself lived there as a stranger and a wanderer, owning barely any land. The question at the heart of the epistle this morning is, how does one live like Jesus is king, when the world does not often look like it? or submit to that fact. In this morning's particular passage, St. Peter characterizes what it means to suffer righteously in community in a world that rebels against the God we obey. He says, All of you be of one mind. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. 
character of Christians in this world is to be the same as Christ's, who, even though he suffered unjustly, did not return evil for evil in the greatest injustice that was ever perpetuated. He instead trusted entrusted himself to God. And for that trust and the deferral of a call to vengeance, God vindicated Jesus through the resurrection and set him up as king over all created powers. As Christ was in his suffering, so we are called to be. When St. Peter says you were called to this, this is the this he was talking about. We are called to be patient and to love even when the world mocks us for being faithful to Jesus, knowing that he sees everything and will repay what is done badly and what is done well. But St. Peter's exhortation this morning takes this concept to a very personal level, obliging every individual Christian, every one of us, to treat one another with graciousness and forbearance, with self-giving love, always. St. Peter calls us to put to death the bickering and the passive aggression among us, as these are alien to the character of Christ and thus alien to the character of a Christian. Now, this is not fundamentally a matter of being nice. It is not fundamentally a matter of avoiding being mean to one another. It is fundamentally a call to trust the God who has called us and not to forsake one another because of our weariness in the world. Hope that alone can foretaste the kingdom of God is the only kind of hope that allows us to see in our neighbor and brethren the redemption that Christ is working in them. And that is enough for godly affection between us. Yet the burden of toil is real, and it remains with us, and it tempts us continually. One particular way it tempts us is to a spiritual condition called dejection, which is a sorrow, a sense of futility at doing good. Dejection is a cancer of the soul that arises when we attempt to cope with the brokenness of the world and ourselves apart from the strength and continual help of God. Dejection begins as a weariness of heart, and it ends with utter despair. It starts where the truth of what God has said clashes with the often more seemingly spectacular and gratifying promises of the world. When we've, for a while, been about the quiet, consistent practice of prayer and the small, secret works of love that we do for God and neighbor, we can be tempted by the idea that such small things can never actually amount to anything in the big picture. And in that moment, when we sense that slip in our habit, we might be inclined to think, wouldn't it be great if the Christian life 
could be expedited through some temporary borrowing of the world's power. Imagine how much we could accomplish with both of these things together. In that doubt, and in that sense of opportunity, we are offered immediately a whole host of quick fixes to the entrenched problems we see within ourselves and the entrenched problems we see in society. And if we accept these offers, we are drawn into an addictive sense of empowerment that continues to promise that we will be different than everyone else before us, that we will be the ones to fix the world. Quickly, though, we realize that the world refuses to change. We grow frustrated. We grow doubtful again that the world can ever change at all. It's here that we should turn back and admit our powerlessness. But if we do not repent, dejection metastasizes in us. Rather than returning to the meekness of prayer and service, we throw ourselves into the movement after movement that the world offers us. And these, all these movements fundamentally share the same dying taproot of worldly power. Then we give up even on the meaningfulness of those things. Then we grow angry with God and angry with neighbor for being unwilling to fix the world like we had wanted. We turn in wrath to punish God and to punish our neighbor for disappointing us. For some, this means outright violence. For most of us, this comes out in the very thing St. Peter warns us against, in a seething, passive aggression, through which we vent our unyielding disappointment and judgment. We grow even more weary. Still nothing changes. Even the energy we get from anger gives out. Dejection has at last set us on a pendulum between bitter rage on one side and bitter sorrow on the other, from which we swing one to the other until all momentum gives out. Vanity of vanity, we might say. For we have toiled through the night and caught nothing. It is not a new story. It is the story of all the children of Adam and Eve. And we have all been confronted by it. We have all been confronted in our times today with the weariness of remaining faithful to God in a world that mocks our belief in a God who is love, in a God whose eyes are over the righteous and who makes all things new. But if we have sold ourselves for worldly power, that story only has one ending. The voice of the world will always tell us that there is a quicker way, a more satisfying way that we can have right now. But this morning, in the midst of the world's noise, Christ himself comes as the true way and speaks with gentleness and still command that voice of dejection to be still. He says to us, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. As with St. Peter by the sea, 
he comes to us to give us our true path and our true life at a point when we are confronted most with the futility of our striving and toil. Then, even as we are about to faint with exhaustion, he comes closer to us to refresh us if we will allow him to love and to toil for his sake is our call and it leads to the end of the resurrection. Thus we are turned back again to the Eucharist, our most potent antidote for dejection. It is where, after making a good confession like St. Peter, we are given Christ himself who fills us to heal us, to nourish us. It is where, after the toil of the night, we are raised again to new life here on this first morning of the week. It is where, no matter where we've been, no matter what our failures or pains or doubts, we are welcomed to come again and to be renewed before we go out again and return to bear faithful witness to him in the world. For this world is a dying world. Its toil and futility a permanent and incurable condition. Yet nevertheless, the life of Christ is making all things new. Through him, and through him alone, the hard ground can yield good fruit again. The barren waters can teem with fish. And even weary men and women can be born again and made glorious like the Son of God is glorious. Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.